Don't leave me naked here. I wish you wouldn't do that yet. Mr. Bush, you can cut all the hairs you want after we've taken your picture. I'll pay for it. Well, why are you on my picture, mate? We're going to run an ad in some papers about your party. Hang some posters up of you. You want me to look like this? Yes. Why? Why? Well, it's how people recognize you, sir. And you want as many people to come as possible, so? So, a crazy old nutter draws more. Hmm. Don't you think? Oh. You ever say what you mean? special treat for you today on WCGM. Our guest is going to tune us into the event that everyone's talking about. And here he is, Mr. Felix Bush, the mysterious hermit from Caleb County. How are you today, sir? I am. Now, sir, exactly how did you come up with the idea of throwing a funeral party before you died? I dreamed it. Really? I have to say, sir, you don't look quite like you do on the posters. I got pruned. Well, you're a bit of a local legend, sir. I, I was a little nervous about our interview. I, I've heard some pretty wild stories. Like what? Well, uh, just from what I understand, you want everyone that has a story to come out and tell it. Is that right? Yeah, well, you come and tell yours. Thank you, sir. Um, now, how long have you been living out there by yourself? Forty-some years. Forty years with nobody to talk to. First 38 are the hardest. Now, why would you do that, Mr. Bush? Shut yourself off like that. Why? You come to the funeral, Come to the funeral and find out, he says. Uh, that's a clip from a movie called Get Low. It's a movie I really enjoyed. I think my buddy Dan and I were the only two people in the world who saw the movie. Anyway, uh, it's based on a true story. Felix Bush is the character's name, played by Robert Duvall. He's a hermit living in the backwoods of Tennessee during the Great Depression. And as he's getting along in his life, he decides it's time to make preparations for his death. And so he goes about planning a funeral party. Um, he wants to be there. He wants to invite everybody to come and to tell stories. And most of us would say, it'd be nice to be at our own funeral so we could hear the nice things that people have to say about us. Felix is convinced nobody's going to have anything good to say about him. And we'll get into that a little bit uh, later on in the message. So he decides as he's getting ready for this funeral party, he needs to get a haircut and he needs to shave off his beard. But in comes the funeral director, the undertaker. Uh, Frank is his name, played by Bill Murray. He's got his sidekick buddy with him. You're like, you can't get a haircut. You can't shave. Nobody will recognize you without your long hair and your beard. It's like your identity. And so they convince him to to hold off until they get that picture so they can advertise and get as many people as possible to come uh, to that funeral party. His look is connected to his identity. He's this lonely, grumpy, angry, bitter old man. And what I love about the movie is they take the time to kind of 
explain and tell the story of how it is that Felix Bush becomes this crazy old nutter, as he calls himself. Uh, It has everything to do with his response to the hurts in his life. We're in a message series called Finding God in the Tough Stuff. Felix Bush had a tough life, and they peel back the layers that, to uncover the sadness and the hurt and uh, the grief that it has caused him to become who he is. By the time you get to the end of the movie, uh, it starts to make sense why he is doing what he is doing. Along the way, as he's exploring the hurts in his life, it starts to rub off on the other characters in the film, and they start taking a look at their own hurts. Uh, And the ways in which they are dealing with those hurts, some of the ways are healthy, some of the ways are not so healthy. Of course, we all have hurts in life. We all experience hurts in life. And some of the hurts maybe you've been carrying with you for decades. Uh, Maybe some of the hurts are as recent as last night. But we all have hurts, and this is the way life kind of works. There's seasons. There's this rhythm to life. Here's the way the wise writer of the book of Ecclesiastes talks about it. Let's read this verse out loud together. For everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. And then the writer goes on to say, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. And on and on it goes. There's a time for everything. There's a time for everything. There's seasons for everything. The wisdom of seasons is to know what season you are in and to stay in that season until the season changes. The wisdom of seasons. Know what season you are in, and stay in that season until the season changes. We live in a period of time where we are not very wise as it relates to seasons. Many of us have convinced ourselves that we have within us the power to change seasons. If we don't like the season we are in, we will do something by any means necessary sometimes in order to try to change seasons, and that's a foolish approach to life. It actually ends up causing a whole lot of hurt and pain. I want to read a portion of an article to you written by a man named Andrew Sullivan. Uh, The title of the article is The Poison We Pick. He's writing about the opioid epidemic in America. The poppy's power is greater than ever. The molecules derived from it have effectively conquered contemporary America. Opium, heroin, morphine, and a universe of synthetic opioids, including the super-powerful painkiller fentanyl, are its proliferating offspring. More than 2 million Americans are now hooked on some kind of opioid, and drug overdoses from heroin and fentanyl in particular claimed more American lives last year than were lost in the entire Vietnam War. The poppy, through its many offshoots, has now been responsible for a decline in life expectancy in America for two years in a row, a decline that isn't happening in any other developed nation. According to the best estimates, Opioids will kill another 52,000 Americans this year alone and up to half a million in the next decade. Some of you in this room know the pain of having people that you care about who are battling addictions to opioids or or painkillers, but make no mistake about it, all of us, all of us, struggle with painkillers. We all have a a painkiller of of choice, something that we do or, or something that we take to try to make the pain, make the hurt go away. It could be as simple as filling our lives with all kinds of good things so that we don't have to pay attention to what is not going well. I had a pretty good week. 
Uh, my son Shaden turned 12 years old on Wednesday. He loves baseball. And so what he wanted for his birthday was to go to a major league game. I scoured Netflix, uh, not, not Netflix, StubHub. I scoured StubHub to see where I could take him on a Monday, my day off, so we could have a day drive, go to the game, get back all, all in one day. And so the closest was Kansas City. We drove down and uh, had some barbecue, went to the game, had an absolutely fantastic time. It was a rain out. It wasn't actually planned to be a game for that day. It was the rain out of the Jackie Robinson day, so everybody was wearing the number 42 on their uniforms. It was a real, real great experience. Celebrated his birthday on Wednesday, and then I stumbled into some tickets to the Chicago Cubs game on Friday. So Friday morning, we road tripped. My son Dalton, Shaden, and his friend Hammy and I uh, made it into Chicago, got some deep dish pizza, and went to Wrigley Field. Thankfully, our seats were in the shade. It was like 95 degrees that day, 100 and some for the uh, heat index. The poor people sitting in the, the bleachers, anytime uh, the sun went behind a cloud, they would start cheering, even if there was nothing else happening in the game. They're just like, ah, some shade, some relief. Anyway, it was a pretty fun week. We got back about uh, 1.30 in the morning, and I thought, well, that's okay, because I'll be able to go to bed really early on Saturday night. There won't be anything going on Saturday night, right? I get my, yeah, anyway, so. So hopefully you got more sleep than I did last night. But uh, a good week, but not every moment of my week was good. My first um, job in ministry was as a student ministry guy at a church in Des Moines, working with the middle school and and high school students of of that church. Had an absolute blast. One of the uh, young women in that group, uh, her name was Elizabeth, huge love for life. Elizabeth always asking really good, really important questions about faith, but about life in general, always trying new things, wanting to explore and experience as much as she possibly could. She was a musician and an artist. My wife Wendy and I would go to Java Joe's and listen to her and her her band uh, play. Wendy liked Elizabeth so much, asked Elizabeth if she'd be one of the bridesmaids in our wedding. Uh, Wednesday this week, I got an email letting me know Elizabeth had died suddenly, unexpectedly, 36 years old. So when do you suppose in my busy week I've taken the time to be sad about that and to grieve and to just allow myself to feel the sting, the pain of death? I've had a moment here or there, but the truth is I haven't taken a whole lot of time. I don't have time to be sad. I got too much other stuff to do. And I think for most of us, this is the way, I mean, how many times when somebody asks you how you are doing, you say, sit down, this could take a while. No, we don't. We say, I'm fine, and we move on. And because we've just kind of been taught those, those feelings that we might, those uh, emotions we might initially describe as negative, we just kind of push them to the periphery so we can focus on what's good, what, what's great. If I feel pain, do whatever it takes to make the pain go away. If I feel lonely, do whatever it takes to make the loneliness go away. If I feel guilty, do whatever it takes to make the guilt go away. The problem with this approach to life, the problem with dealing with the hurts in our life this way, is that it's actually, it's kind of a way of skipping seasons. It's not allowing ourselves to stay present in the season that we are actually in, and it ends up being a foolish way to live our lives. Sort of the opposite end of the spectrum of of a strategy of skipping seasons would be the strategy that Felix Bush employs uh, in this movie, Get Low. He does something early on in his life. As a young man, he does something that causes hurt and pain in the life of uh, some people around him, but also in his own life. And so he sets up for the next 40 years, he just kind of holds on to that guilt, 
holds on to that pain, disconnects, isolates, and instead of trying to skip seasons, the mistake Felix makes, he lives as if there's only one season. The seasons never change. It's just going to be constantly the season of, of sorrow and guilt and shame and sadness. There's a woman in the film, her character's name is Miss Maddie, played by Sissy Spacek. And Miss Maddie and Felix grew up together in this community in, in Tennessee, and Miss Maddie's sister died when they were both young. Big part of the hurt in both Felix and Miss Maddie's life. She gets married and she moves away from town, but her husband dies, and as a widow, she moves back to town, hears that Felix is planning his funeral party, hasn't spoken to him for decades, and so she decides, I'm just going to go pay him a visit. Uh, visit his farm, visit his place, and here's what happens. Take a look. Well, you've been alone a long time. Yeah, well, some people are more suited to it than others, I reckon. Bonnie, I never thought it would suit you. No one to talk to, no one to be with. How you sleeping these days, girl? Huh? Am I what? Yeah, hey. You sleep good? No, not lately. Yeah. How did you know? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Valerian. To help you not off when the nights get long. Yeah. Now you want to go on a ways? Yes. Yeah. Would you, uh, would you stay for supper? Oh, I don't want to be in trouble. Oh, supper guest every 30, 40 years. <laughs> not much trouble, girl. <laughs> All right, then. You still play the piano? Oh, I teach a few girls. I got a good feeling when you play. Remember the time you was playing and the lamp burned out and you went right <laughs> oh, on in the dark? I hear that song sometimes at night. Yeah. I do. Sure is quiet out here. Huh? I said it sure is... Tried to write you a few times, but I didn't know what to say. Well, I heard you're married. Yeah, to a doctor. Good man. We uh, lived in St. Louis for a while. He died uh, about a year ago, so I came back here because <laughs> I have no idea why. The list of people who are gone is getting longer and longer, and it seems like all I'm doing is just waiting for my name to be called. You have a tender heart, you always did. You know? Can't wait for anything, Maddie. Close your eyes, hold your breath. Stay in one spot your whole life, but you're still moving. Like the world is, uh, you know, moving under you. There's no waiting. And there's no getting over some things, is there? Yeah. Reckon not, a little bit. A little bit. Oh my God, I didn't call that.
No getting over some things, Miss Maddie says. Then she sees a picture of her sister who died 40 years earlier. And in that moment, all of that pain, all of that hurt comes flooding back in as though she was just hearing about her sister's death for the very first time. Philip Yancey writes an important book, part of the conversation we're trying to have today. The book's called Where is God When It Hurts? And part of what Yancey writes in the book is, He says, pain demands attention that is crucial to my recovery. Pain demands attention that is crucial to my recovery. When I'm experiencing hurt and pain in life, the sort of knee-jerk response is to do whatever it takes to make the pain go away. But what if when I experience hurt and pain in life, the idea is to pay attention enough to kind of learn what is the lesson that I'm supposed to be getting taught in the midst of this experience? It's a subtle but important distinction. The purpose of pain is not to get over it. The purpose of pain is to allow it to help, to aid in our recovery, to move us down the path to healing. And, and let me stop here and just make a distinction. There are, that's not the purpose of all pain in life. There are people in this congregation who suffer daily from chronic pain crippling arthritis, the the pain that comes from treatments for diseases that are perhaps terminal. And so when you're in the midst of experiencing that kind of pain, any kind of relief is going to be like a, a small taste of heaven. That's not necessarily the kind of pain we're talking about today. We're talking about probably the 90% of pain that we experience in life, the pain that could potentially be short-term, the, the pain that If we were to do something, change circumstances, there could be healing, the pain could go away. Talk to the right kind of doctor and get on a treatment plan or or take more time for rest rather than being busy and busy and busy or maybe just changing some things in our life so that we're no longer putting ourselves in the position where we continue to be hurt day after day after day. Where is God in my hurt? If that's the guiding question for what we're looking about, what we're talking about today, Part of what we need to do is face this inconvenient truth. Pain is God's idea. God's the one who came up with pain. And that might be surprising to hear from someone who says, God is good and God is loving. But perhaps we need to reframe our understanding of pain just a little bit. So Yancey in the book, part of what he does is he talks about, I don't know, the physiology or the anatomy of pain. He goes through a couple of charts. The first one is about skin sensitivity. They do these tests of people. They apply pressure to different parts of your body, different areas of your skin. And how much pressure does it take before you notice that you are being touched or before you feel something? Skin sensitivity. So the tip of our tongue, sensitive to two grams of pressure. Fingers, fingertips sensitive to three grams of pressure. Skip down to the sole of your foot. It takes 250 grams of pressure before the sole of your foot notices. Skin is one organ, but uh, different parts of that organ have different sensitivities. And it's important. You look, look at the tip of the tongue and the fingers, the parts of our body that are so necessary for certain kinds of enjoyment in life, eating, communicating, uh, creating art, whether it's painting or, or playing the piano, lovingly caressing a child. The parts of our bodies that do those sorts of things, they require finely tuned sensitivity. What if the sole of our foot had the same kind of sensitivity? It'd be kind of a weird existence, wouldn't it? 
So it's purposeful. It's purposeful how this all plays itself out. I want you to pay attention particularly three grams of pressure is what it takes for you to notice or to feel that kind of pressure on your fingertips as we move to chart B where they're talking about thresholds of pain for different parts of of our skin. They do a survey where they take a really sharp needle and they apply pressure to areas of your skin and ask, let me know when it hurts. Like, who signs up to be a part of that study? Medical students, primarily, always wanting to, you know, advance the cause of science. But uh, threshold of pain, the cornea of your eye, it takes 0.2 grams of pressure from that sharp needle before you feel a painful sensation. Forearm, 20 grams. Back of hand, 100 grams. Sole of foot, 200 grams from that sharp needle. Fingertip, 300 grams produces a painful sensation. To notice, to, to feel pressure, it only takes three grams of pressure for our fingertips, but for that pressure to turn into something we would describe as pain from a sharp needle, it takes 100 times as much pressure. Why? Well, it's everything to do with purpose, what, what purpose that part of the body is serving. In order to experience a full range of life, the fullness of life that, that God wants for us, our fingertips in certain parts of our body, they have to be super sensitive and super tough at the same time has everything to do with function, everything to do with what's their purpose. Think about how easy it is to damage your eye or to lose your eyesight. So it makes sense that it would take very little. uh, Our our eyes are very sensitive to pain. Uh, Think about world-class athletes. They'll play through broken bones and torn ligaments, but if they get, I don't know, lose a contact or get an eyelash, they're pathetic. And part of what I'm asking you to consider, just kind of think about, is it possible, is it possible, pain is not God's great goof? That as God is creating the heavens and the earth and saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, at the end of those days of creation, God doesn't say, yeah, it's all good except for that pain thing. I probably never should have created. No, God says pain is good. It's important. It has a purpose. It is valuable as it helps communicate to our bodies that something is wrong. What if you applied the same kind of logic to non-physical pain, to emotional hurt, to the pain of broken relationships? What is the purpose of that? Is there anything valuable about that? Is, it, is the pain trying to communicate something to us? I wonder if part of what's being communicated when we experience that kind of hurt and that kind of pain in our life is oftentimes we fall into this trap of trying to save ourselves. That's what's going on in Felix Bush's life. He's experienced pain for 40 years. He's trying to plan this funeral party. He wants people to come and talk and tell him how awful he is. Nobody wants to come and talk because they're scared of him, scared of what he might do to them if they say something mean about him. So he ends up going to one of his former pastors and asking the pastor, would you be willing to come and talk at my funeral? Take a look. You know, my hearing's not what it was. Sounded like you said you want me to preach at your funeral party with you sitting there. Yes, sir. I've talked to God a lot about you over the years. He said he broke the mold when he made you. He said you're sure entertaining to watch, but way too much trouble. (laughs) 
What would you want me to say at this funeral? Say anything you want to say, Charlie. Could you give us a minute? No, sit still. What's the matter? You scared to be alone with me? No, he can hear what's said. All right. After you left here, did you do the right thing? I felt that I did the right thing. Yes. You confessed? Asked forgiveness? Did you tell her, Felix? You've come a long way for nothing. You're self-righteous, no Don't kind. you dare. No, hey, you listen to me. I built my own jail and put myself in it. No wife, no kids, no, no, no friends, no nothing. No grandchildren. I wouldn't even know how to hold a baby. You hear me? 40 years. Now that's not enough. You know it's not. Well, why don't you come and say that then, Charlie? Felix experiences uh, the hurt and the, the pain of his actions and his response is to distance himself from everyone, to live sort of in this jail cell of isolation. He's holding on to his guilt. He has this mistaken belief that, that somehow he has the power, it's up to him to fix what has been broken. And his method for fixing it is day after day after day, just reminding himself of what he has done and the hurt that he has caused. And at the end of 40 years of these self-inflicted wounds, it's almost like he's surprised that didn't do the trick. It's surprised it didn't make the pain go away. He's trying to save himself. He thinks he has the power to save himself. And you and I do this in all sorts of ways. We, we fill our lives with, if I just have enough money, if I just have enough relationships, if, if I just have enough success, if I just am part of enough activities, it will make the pain go away. We're always doing things, trying to make that, that pain go away, hoping it will heal what's been hurt or what is broken in our lives. But again, we're making the mistake of thinking we have the power to save ourselves. It's up to us to fix it. Where is God in my hurt? Christianity has something unique to offer to this conversation. Now, the Bible reading for today is from the book of Lamentations. It contains two of the most recognizable verses in all of Scripture. Let's read these out loud. They're on the screen. Read them with me. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah right after the siege of Jerusalem. If you want to read about people who are hurting, who are sad, who are confused, who are going through terrible loss, read about the siege of Jerusalem and how awful it must have been to be living in those conditions and watching your home just be ripped apart. So Jeremiah writes this, and almost all of the book is this litany of, this is how awful it is. This is how awful I feel. This is how absent God seems. My faith is just nowhere to be found. And then there are these two verses in the middle of it that point to kind of this optimistic future and the potential for hope. And so it's no wonder we grab onto those verses. They're pointing to a different kind of season. 
But one of the mistakes we make as we interpret this passage is we, we say, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. That must be true. His mercies begin afresh each morning. That must be true. If I just put my faith in God and, and believe this to be true, then I won't have to ever experience hurt anymore in my life. And of course, that would be a misinterpretation. It's not what the passage is about. Look a couple of verses later in verse 26. Read this with me. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Let's read it together one more time. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. The word for salvation in the Hebrew is teshua. Everyone say teshua. And the word for Lord in Hebrew is Yahweh. Everyone say Yahweh. Last week, Eli was telling us his full name is Elias. It's the Greek version of a Hebrew name, Elijah. Jesus is a similar reality. Jesus is the Greek version of a Hebrew name. Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua. They take two Hebrew words and combine them. The Hebrew word for Lord, Yahweh, and the Hebrew word for Teshua, uh, for salvation, Teshua. Put those together, you get Yeshua, the name of Jesus. 500 years before Jesus is born, Jeremiah says, it is good to wait quietly for Jesus. It is good to wait quietly for Jesus. We don't want to wait quietly. We want to switch seasons. It is good to wait quietly for Jesus. The New Testament word for salvation is sozo. The primary meaning of the word that gets translated salvation, it means to heal, to restore to health. Part of what it means to say, Jesus is my Savior is to say, I have given up trying to save myself. That when I experience hurt in life, I understand I am powerless to heal myself. But I trust, I have faith, I believe there's a God who has all the power in the universe, and that God has decided to use that power to come to me. Where is God in my hurt? It's a statement more than it is a question. Where is God, period? Answer, in my heart. God comes to us. God enters our pain. God enters the world in the person of Jesus. Jesus experiences all the hurt you and I experience. Relational hurt, emotional hurt, physical hurt. He goes to the cross and he dies. Why? So we can be saved, so we can be healed. Prophet Isaiah talks about it this way in Isaiah chapter 53. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's part of the surprising good news of Jesus. Jesus comes to redeem what is hurt, what is broken in our lives. He comes to give new meaning to our hurt. He comes to save, he comes to heal. And along the way, he asks us to follow him. If you would be my disciple, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Just as Jesus goes to the cross so that there can be healing for hurts in this world, Jesus says, church, pick up your cross so that you can be a part of this redemptive story of providing healing, going into the places of this world that are hurt and broken so that you can provide healing. 
Later on at the end of this book, Where is God When It Hurts, Philip Yancey writes this, when a social worker moves into an urban ghetto, when a couple refuses to give up on a difficult marriage, when a parent waits with undying hope and forgiveness for the return of an estranged child, when a young professional resists mounting temptation toward wealth and success, in all these sufferings, large and small, there is the assurance of a deeper level of meaning a sharing in Christ's own redemptive victory. A sharing in Christ's redemptive victory. One of the great contributions that Lutherans make to Christian theology is Luther's theology of the cross, which, as simply as I know how to to describe it, Luther is saying, wherever there is suffering, wherever there is pain, wherever there is hurt, that's where God is. This is what the cross shows us. This is what the cross teaches us. Wherever there is hurt, that's where God is. And to be the church means we go to the hurt, we go to the suffering to bring the healing that only Jesus can bring.